This is a session that everyone has been looking forward to. It's always good to return to Jane Austen, especially to get an original interpretation. Uh, Sam Baker is going to uh, introduce the speaker. Just want to say afterwards there will be a book signing downstairs in the lobby. Sam? Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm delighted today to reintroduce to you all my colleague, Janine Barkas, the Luann and Larry Temple Centennial Professor in English Literature here at the University of Texas at Austin. Janine's spoken here at British Studies before, most recently three years ago when she talked about the popular Will and Jane exhibition that she co-curated with Christina Straub at the Folger Shakespeare Library. And I believe we're fortunate to have Dr. Straub, uh, who's currently a research fellow at the Harry Ransom Center, with us today as well in the audience. Janine is also in a fellowship this year, sponsored by the American Council of Learned Societies, an ACLS fellowship, pursuing a new project at what one could rent in the time of Jane Austen and what the emergence of that economic relation meant for the culture and literature of the era. And I, I looked online for more information about this fascinating project of Janine's earlier, but it's so new that all I could find was websites proposing to rent me copies of the books that she's written, <laughs> which makes sense since uh, the 18th century phenomenon of renting books through circulating libraries is a big part of her interest in this topic. The material history of the book has long been Janine's research focus. Her first monograph was about graphic design and the 18th century British novel, and it won the DeLong Prize in Book History from Sharp, the leading professional organization in that field. In her second book, Matters of Fact and Jane Austen, History, Location, and Celebrity, Janine demonstrated that Austen, born in 1775, was influenced by the then-emergent culture of celebrity. With this book and a fleet of related essays, including articles in the popular press for the Washington Post, New York Times, and Los Angeles Review of Books, Jean has established herself as a leading Janeite. She now serves as president for the North American Friends of Chawton House, the former home of Jane Austen's brother Edward, and a great place to visit if you're in the south of England. Meanwhile, you can explore Jean's recreation of Austen's milieu online at whatjanesaw.org, a wonderful website recreating Austin's gallery-going experiences. And you can see Janine's collaborative contributions to the curatorial arts downstairs here in the HRC gallery devoted to Austin and Austin, which shows our favorite archives holdings in Ostiana. Today, Janine will discuss her just-released book, The Lost Books of Jane Austen, which she describes as mixing hardcore bibliography with the tactics of the Antiques Roadshow. And as Roger mentioned right after her talk today, she'll slip downstairs to sign copies of this new book in the Ransom Center lobby, where it is available for sale in the gift shop, not just today, but every day through the 5th of January, and I'm sure beyond that as well, in conjunction with the Austin and Austin exhibition. So I'm very excited now uh, to yield the floor to Janine to hear about her latest findings. Ever since we were recruited to Chicago a quarter century ago to work as graduate students with Bruce Redford and Paul Hunter, I've been following in her footsteps 19th century studies to the point that some of you will remember when she was off in New Zealand safely at a safe distance earlier this semester. And my own talk here was characterizing my own method as positively Barkasian. And now I'm delighted that we can see that method practiced by its master, Janine Barkas herself, speaking to us again on The Lost Books of Jane Austen. Thank you, Sam. Um, we've known each other a long time. Um, it is a pleasure 
can everyone hear me in the back? Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, it is uh, a pleasure to share uh, some research from my new book. And I, I have copies. Uh, it just came out uh, two weeks ago. And uh, so I thought I'd bring some copies to, uh, you know, tempt you into buying it downstairs and having me sign it for posterity. Um, so this project began as a local curiosity, and it grew into a decade of unconventional book hunting. But the central idea has always remained steady and simple, and that is that cheap books help make authors canonical. Cheap books spread fame, but they also tend to be consumed rather than collected, and there's the rub. Cheap reprints of Jane Austen are lost books. Frustratingly, few examples survive, of what may be the best markers of her reception history. And before turning to the technology of stereotyping that I want to teach you about today that helped lower the cost of books during the 19th century, allow me to begin by showing you a smattering of Austin's cheapest, most badly printed, least authoritative, and most neglected editions not to be found among the jewels of the Ransom Center, at least not yet. And I had a lot of necessary help from private collectors who have safeguarded these fragile survivors of these underappreciated reprintings for posterity. But I warn you, this slideshow is not pretty, for cheap books live hard lives. So, in the latter half of the 19th century, cheap and shoddy versions of Jane Austen's novels performed the heavy lifting of bringing her work and reputation before the general public. Inexpensive reprints and early paperbacks of Austen were sold at Victorian railway stations for one or two shillings, traded for soap wrappers, squeezed into tight columns on flimsy paper for mere pennies, awarded as book prizes in schools, and targeted to the working classes. Few of these hard-lived books survive. Yet scrappy versions of Austen's novels made a substantial difference to her early readership. These were the books bought and read by ordinary people. And these are the books that, due to their low status and low production values, remain largely absent from the shelves of academic libraries and thus unremarked by scholars. In Britain, the waste paper drives of both world wars uh, ensured that many cheap editions deemed unimportant were simply pulped. And in America, ill-placed concerns about acidic paper resulted in 19th century books being tossed by librarians favoring storage on microfilm. My research challenges traditional valuations of what constitutes an important version of a book in an effort to democratize Jane Austen's reception history and consider how books read by working-class readers, by non-scholars, and even by schoolchildren impact literary reputation. My interest lies not in abridgments or adaptations, but in lowly versions of novels in their entire, uncut and unfiltered. Even when the words inside books are identical and the stories complete, shoddy versions present Austen's fame differently than do precious editions painstakingly safeguarded by scholarly libraries and traditional collectors. Only lowbrow versions of Austen's novels can show scholars and fans alike that her burgeoning literary reputation was not the tidy accretion of polish, status, and starch that history has inadvertently made it out to be. Original 
Authoritative and handsomely illustrated editions did help Austin's early visibility, to be sure. But so did the numerous unsung reprintings at the very bottom end of the book market and in messy and startling ways. By literally cheapening Austin, these versions showed an everyday writer whose public appeal differed radically from the official canonical offer, author proffered and supported by those fine editions. When the, the Ransom Center learned about my project in this category of books, um, discussions began about collecting practices. And I was allowed uh, to gather, and I can't believe they let me do this, um, to gather all of their holdings on Jane Austen and curate the exhibition that is currently downstairs in the Stories to Tell gallery through the 5th of January. The exhibition traces the collecting habits of the Ransom Center through the lens of a single author to ask how do certain books come to be preserved in buildings like this. The exhibition, which I urge you to see afterwards, if you can pop by, is called Austin in Austin, and it's located at the very far section uh, of the downstairs gallery. Okay, let me tell you a story. This is the orthodox view and fairy tale of Jane Austen's reception history. It is well known that Jane Austen's reputation lay dormant for the 15 years or so following her death in 1817, and the orthodox view is that she reached a wide English audience only after Richard Bentley revived her work for his standard novels reprint series in 1833. But publisher Bentley, although he was an important catalyst, is not the true hero of our Sleeping Beauty story. His books were also not as cheap and as accessible as scholars taking Bentley's advertisements at their word have assumed. Bentley emphasized the inexpensive nature of his handsomely produced compact volumes, ornamented with elegant frontispieces and title page illustrations, price six shilling, and cheap edition. He was an early adopter of publisher-issued bindings in cloth, and his prices not only reflected the paper savings of his three-in-one volume format, but the sudden freedom from traditional leather bindings. Scholars have amply recorded and praised Bentley re reprint reprintings of Austen in his standard novel series, stressing their authority. After all, he was the only one to pay for proper copyrights and stressing their importance as Austen's reputational turnkey. Bentley, it is said, unlocked her fame. And as a result of this attention, Bentley's sedate volumes are now highly sought after. However, Bentley's influence upon Austen's reception may be greatly overplayed, for his books were quickly joined by far cheaper versions with a much wider impact. And the role of these less princely reprints has been largely ignored in this dominant fairy tale version of Austen's reception. So my research is not on, the focus is not on Bentley's well-touted books, but on the neglected products of his downmarket competitors. However, Bentley's prices and claims to cheapness do help to calibrate everything that came next. So let's recap some facts and numbers. In 1811, the first edition of Sense and Sensibility had sold in three volumes for 15 shillings in boards. A proper binding remained extra. And in December of 1815, advertisements for the first edition of Emma raised that price by six shillings to a guinea, or 21 shillings, for its three volumes in boards. And this um, 
four-volume set of Northanger Abbey with Persuasion sold initially for 24 shillings, which was a further three-shilling top-up. In other words, hand-press books in Austen's lifetime remained luxury items, which explains why her novels appear in such modest runs, possibly as low as 750 copies for Sense and Sensibility and as high as 2,000 copies of Emma. It's not a lot. And then in 1833, Bentley introduced his well-made reprints of Miss Austen in single volumes. At six shillings, each in durable publisher's bindings of plum-colored linen with paper labels. And Bentley's runs were, larger for the, were large for the time, about 4000 per title. And his six-shilling price tag was comparatively low. By means of stereotyping, as I shall explain in a moment, Bentley periodically continued to reissue identical Austen volumes through 1866, briefly lowering its price still further in the 1840s in response to pressure from competitors. While meanwhile, the cost for an upmarket first edition of a new novel in the three-decker format made popular by Sir Walter Scott stubbornly held until the mid-90s at one pound, 11 shillings and sixpence, or 31 and a half shillings for new fiction. So no wonder then that scholars comparing Bentley's prices to those of first editions only have hailed him as Jane Austen's reputational Prince Charming. Bentley's relative bargains and print runs certainly pushed Austen's visibility, but his six-shilling reprints were not within easy reach of a skilled worker earning 25 shillings a week, let alone an unskilled laboring, laborer earning half that much. In the 1830s, bookselling remained, in the words of publisher George Rutledge, quote, a peculiarly rotten system of providing only for the select few. Bentley's much-hailed cheap books were the purview of well-to-do Victorian clients, such as socialite Lady Molesworth of Pencaro, close friend of Thackeray and Dickens, and known for the well-turned leg of her footman. She owned a complete set of Bentley's reprints of Austen, shown here, published in 1856, that she had bound in green cloth prettily stamped with a gilt design. These were Bentley's clients. And in 1846, after the copyright of Austen's first three novels expired and the competition by upstart publishers increased, the fastidious Bentley was briefly forced to drop his price to two and a half shillings a volume. The shame of it adjusted in 1848 up to three and a half shillings. He was slumming it in order to place his standard novels, ostensibly, quote, within the reach of all classes of readers. <coughs> Surviving Bentley copies of Austen from this period are extremely rare, but those in their original publisher's bindings, shown here, bear witness on their spines to his momentary drop in price itself a fraught response to the radical changes in the marketplace wrought by this cheaper fare. In 1870, however, this is the cheaper fare, Bentley had abandoned the battle for the cheaps to others, having sold at auction his plates for all his standard novels, only to climb safely back to his preferred six-shilling rung, rung with a reset and enlarged authorized edition. By then, Far cheaper versions of Austen in astonishingly large numbers and unprecedented variety were then newly reaching working class audiences. Publishers such as T Sims and McIntyre, shown here, 
Rutledge, and Chapman and Hall were then selling the forerunners of airport paperbacks out of railway stations and bookstalls for a mere one or two shillings, with some as low as sixpence. Fluctuating production values, including paper quality, meant that not all of these other 19th century versions have aged well, and few have ended up in libraries. And yet these reprints, dismissed as dubious by all but the occasional antiquarian in favor of the sturdier stuff of authoritative firsts or scholarly editions, nevertheless enabled Austin's global celebrity. Okay, a little technology to entertain you. Over the course of the 19th century, books became drastically cheaper, you probably know this, due to a number of innovations. Machine-made pulp paper, new distribution channels enabled by a national rail system, and stereotype technology. All of these lowered production costs. But it's a technology of stereotyping that complicates the valuation and taxonomy that lie at the heart of bibliography. David Gilson's A Bibliography of Jane Austen remains the definitive inventory consulted by libraries and collectors. Ironically, precisely due to Gilson's rigorous bibliographical training, which has taught him to ignore externals such as binding styles, his list of editions proves far from comprehensive. Both book technology and taxonomy, therefore, warrant a brief explanation in order to understand why so many reprintings of a major author, if not the second most major author in English, have gone unrecorded even by her finest bibliographers. Many 19th century books claim to be new editions when they're actually pre-existing books dressed in the frocks of updated title pages and fresh paper wrappers or binding styles in cloth, known as casings. Sending a book anew from loose type was time-consuming. It cost a great deal and took up much of a printer's type stock for the production of a single work. But stereotyping, a technology fully adopted by the 1840s, so Mr. Bentley was an early adopter, enabled cheap books to flourish by allowing printers to mold and then cast in metal the labor-intensive multi-page forms of set type. You can see that happening here. A mold is being created from which a plate, this is not, they don't match, um, it has been made. And this plate, um, is that one was for an advertisement, so it's attached to a piece of wood. So imagine it simply as a thin plate. Publishers could then reorder a text from these flat plates, the same printed one at intervals, whether, whenever existing stock became depleted. Individual print runs could then be reduced to several hundred copies instead of thousands, further lowering for the publisher both the risk of overexposure and the cost of inventory storage. True, over time, the stereotype plates wore down, lessening the sharpness of the type in later impressions, but printers nonetheless hailed these big slabs of metal for their longevity and capacity to retain their value over decades, if carefully stored and handled. Whenever a publishing firm thought its own market exhausted for a particular title or liquidated assets for other reasons, it could sell these plates to another publisher via private sale or public trade auction. And swaps and sales of plates occurred on both sides of the Atlantic. Publishers of cheap books worked these stereotype plates to their limits, enthusiastically reprinting and repackaging the same text year after year to make old books look perpetually new. Now, bibliographies prominently list editions, 
And the key to bibliographical taxonomy turns upon the central text, which is this... Here's the, the question, uh, which in uh, sort of the next assortment of eight books, uh, uh, starting uh, with... Um, with Bentley's copy of Northanger Abbey. So I've chosen the same book to show you uh, what happens with the print. All these books are, and I'm sorry I didn't linger on the, what is an edition? An edition, I've just explained to you what it is. (laughs) Um, In these eight books, they look different, but they are internally identical. They're all printed from the same stereotype plates that Bentley birthed in 1833 even if they're printed by different publishers and with the same words, the same layout, and the same page numbers. So the taxonomic category of an edition becomes, in the age of stereotyping, slippery, because, strictly speaking, an edition comprises all copies of a book printed at any time or times from one setting of type without substantial change. An impression then refers to a printing or reprint run of an edition made in one go without the type being removed from the press. And these professional bibliographical terms were all constructed with an eye to hand press books made during the entire sort of four centuries or nearly four centuries between Gutenberg, to be seen downstairs, um, in the 1450s and stereotype technology by the 1830s when Bentley is working. With stereotyping, how much time then between print runs from the same plates, even if under the direction of the same publisher, is enough to warrant a separate bibliographic entry? Gilson, who records some additional runs in series and as reissues, but not all, shows that bibliographical assessment of 19th century books, the thing we hold ourselves to as scholars, becomes a judgment call about their importance, to record or not to record. That is the question. But more than semantics is at stake, for the cheap volumes that get left out of formal inventories reveal Austin's active participation at the neglected, the bottom end of the book market, even as they muddy bibliographical waters. So, back to these eight non-Bentley copies tracked in the following slides. While bibliographically identical on the inside when it comes to their central text, they differ in look, in price, and in virtue signaling, all the features that we know determine audience. Most of these copies are going to be undated, and as we view the slides together, I want to convince you that each iteration of ostensibly the same book may offer slightly different information about the history of Austin's reception. So just moving through the slides together, we start with Bentley, um, who in 1833 creates these plates with which he prints until 1866 himself, various runs of these same editions. So I'm showing you the first page of text from Northanger Abbey and from Persuasion uh, that is packaged slightly differently for Bentley over those decades, but these are the first few pages. Memorize them because you'll see them again. Um, Chapman and Hall, by 1870, has acquired the plates legally, and with Bentley's consent, he just decided to go back up to that six-shilling rung and just leave it to the cheaps, the other people. Um, Chapman and Hall are those other people, the bottom dwellers of the market, and they are printing 
Uh, one of these books is downstairs. It's super rare. I had to go to Monash University in Australia to find another one. Um, these are yellowbacks. These are the books sold for one or two shillings in railway stations. And uh, they look, um, as I'm sure you recognize, as like penny dreadfuls. This is Jane Austen as pop culture in, 18, in the 1870s. Um, inside, there are advertisements for other things. They have the gumption to call it a new edition, even though they've been use they're using Bentley's plates almost four decades later. Um, and indeed, on the inside, you recognize that they are the same book, made from the same plates. Page for page, they are the same. And we continue. Ward and Locke takes over from Chapman and Hall, and they take over the plates as well. This book has lived a very hard life, but you can imagine that it was once in good shape with advertisements at the front, lowering the cost, still labeled as a new edition. At two shillings, it looks exactly the same, and we're seeing a little bit of dodgy plateware uh, on those particular pages. We're now in 1882, and why not package it with a little bling um, and, you know, a little guilt, not Catholic or Jewish guilt, but the blingy guilt at the front here for two and a half shillings now. Let's go up market and make it a school book prize. Gumption to call it a new edition when clearly we're now well into this not being so. But we have it part of a new series, price two shillings a volume with bling, it's two and a half. Um, and same pages, word for word, same books. Um, Warden Locke makes it part of other series. These books are now so rare because they were thrown out that I couldn't even find uh, a Northanger Abbey persuasion, even though the advertisement suggested that, that they did the entire series. And of course they would because the plates ended up staying together for decades. Um, so that was part of the Royal Library of Choice Books by Famous Authors, Two Shillings in Red Cloth. Then the Lily series comes along in 1888 it looks like this still has the gumption to call itself a new edition when uh, for now for a shilling and a half, uh, you can still buy exactly the same book. Uh, so we're now printing circa 1890s and Warden Locke hands uh, this particular set of plates off to Grand Coliseum Warehouse. Yes, yeah, a, a great and famous establishment, I'm sure. Um, in Glasgow, uh, which are printing for the colonial market. So these are British books that already serve a certain kind of popular audience. They're being reprinted, repackaged in a very stylish way, and then shipped off for a different market at a different price. And on the inside, they did the whole Lily series for Ward and Locke. So they did this with permission. It's still the same book on the inside. Um, now, however, you can see some serious plateware. On page 25, buyer beware, because I would never see him again. I also may never see the end of the line and read the rest. Um, Warden Locke takes the plates back, continues to print these nice little prize books, uh, little gift series, and at least they're not saying it's a new edition. Uh, lots of advertisements, uh, the whole series, and you can see this is really bad paper now. We're really printing 
uh, cheap stuff. But the book is still readable, and it's still the same book. And yes, you can still see that plateware on page 25. Um, And I just picked page 25. There's also plateware on page 26 and 27 and 28. But this is just a good corner to show you. Um, Ward and Locke also tried to sort of a little bit more upmarket repackaging. So this looks really nice. Forget the, the stain. And just imagine how gleaming it looks with that gilt. And lo and behold, new edition. We're now six decades into using those plates and reusing and recycling them. You can really see the plate wear on those corners uh, where things have been worn and bumped and crunched. Still new edition, still selling it at railway stations now in the 1890s. Um, Advertisements, even in undated books, can sometimes help us uh, date the books. And we definitely recognize the plates as from Bentley, and we definitely recognize that the plate wear is really uh, serious. And for comparisons, this is what it looks like, that page, in 1833. And now this is what it looks like in 1893 or maybe even 1900 um, uh, when this... So we're now dealing with plates that have are, are into their seventh decade of use. And that is a stretch, even for this particular technology. But it explains why the bibliographers decide that, well, these, this is the kind of rubbish you can just ignore. Okay. So, not all rubbish gets tossed, because um, everyone likes a bargain. And some of Austin's most important critics and fellow writers have encountered her in workmanlike copies. Celebrity, celebrity provenance has been the exception to standard collecting practices, allowing a few ordinary copies of Austin to be made extraordinary by the people who owned them. For example, an unassuming and unrecorded late Victorian reprint of Northanger Abbey once belonged to Samuel Clemens and is now a well-guarded treasure at the Mark Twain Library in Reading, Connecticut, where it is indeed saved for Twain's celebrity and not Austin's. Similarly, here at the Ransom Center, we safeguard this unassuming 1897 copy of Northanger Abbey Persuasion. They were done in one volume throughout because it once belonged to the library of H.G. Wells. Wells inscribed the book to his wife, Amy Catherine Wells, in the style of a mock school prize, and the inscription, ornamented by him with a wee crown, awards the book somewhat condescendingly to A.C. Wells, February 21, 1899, as prize for good conduct. Another unlikely resident in this building is this stained and shabby everyman's copy of Northanger Abbey and Persuasion, which was owned by author T.H. White. Six years before publishing The Sword in the Stone, White wrote a locked room mystery called Darkness at Pemberley, in which murder menaces the descendants of Darcy and Elizabeth and notes inside this water-stained copy of Austin. Now, conservation staff wants me to point out it came this way to the building. Um, These notes prove that White was attentive to the works that she, in her turn, referenced in Northanger Abbey. And such commonplace versions of Austin are preserved because they offer clues to how other famous writers read and worked. But what of the ordinary copies read by the so-called common reader? What might they tell us about who read Austin and in what context? Now, 
Oh, these are his notes. Um, you can see them downstairs in the exhibition if you want to get a closer look. Um, okay, what about the ordinary copies? So throughout my research, I have been gobsmacked, not just by the unexpected range and number of Austin novels at low price points that had never been recorded by bibliographers, but the information they still yield about reading habits and people. I freely admit that my learning curve on this project has been steep and rather inelegant. Schooled in the bibliography of hand-pressed books of the 18th century, some of my own first impressions of Victorian reprints proved, well, dead wrong, really. In the beginning of this project, I guessed wrong about price points. I thought things pretty inexpensive when they were not. Dates of publication, about aesthetics, about audiences, often because it was so hard to shed my own anachronism and not judge the covers of old books with either a modern eye or a bibliographer's rigid categories. Some colorful specimens of publishers' bindings, which I thought these had, I thought them rather fancy at first, proved among the schlockiest and most ill-made examples of cloth-bound books, Aaron is nodding, on the market. Decorated with splashy colors and bling to appeal to the magpie eyes of youth, me apparently, such books were printed circa 1900 by a man named Richard Edward King, a true bottom dweller of a London's publishing industry about whom history therefore records nothing. Printed on low-quality paper using tired and worn stereotype plates that had already served many prior masters, these glitzy but cheap books, and I now think of them as fodder for a possible pimp my book demo, <laughs> were aimed at the school prize market in Britain. And for working class children who received these books, they were surely wondrous trophies. But as they are neither authoritative nor well made, these editions failed to gain regular access to libraries or to the bibliographical record. I was surprised by how many lowly cloth-bound books were inscribed with names of prior owners. Information derived from these names challenged my sense of Austin's 19th century reader, that nameless, generic ghost so often invoked by scholars, including myself. The names altered my assumption of Austin's history of gendered marketing and the ages of her presumed readers in 1891, it was Master Henry Bowl who won this inexpensive Lily series copy of Austin's Northanger Abbey and Persuasion bound in blue cloth with silver stamping. The Victorian language of flowers assigned symbolic significance to different flower species, with the lily holding a special place in Christian iconography and signaling purity. In other words, many floral designs were initially perceived by the parents and the teachers who gave out these books, as gender neutral, as testified to by surviving copies inscribed with the names of real teen readers, boys as well as girls, often ages 12 to 14. As I traced the names of these real readers to census records by means of a few clicks via Ancestry.com, I slowly discovered that prize books too had a dark side. Research proved that many such names belonged to young working class readers whose gritty circumstances combined uneasily with the elegant Regency world of Austen's stories or the bright and sunny covers of these books. About 1910, Blackie and Sons of Glasgow published 
Northanger Abbey in a popular gift series that joined her to dozens of juvenile titles bound in similar cloth case casings of popping bright colors, each stamped with the eye-catching Macintosh rose design that is the hallmark of Scottish Art Nouveau. And in this series, once popular as school prizes but not as collection material for serious libraries, Austin kept company with Dog Crusoe, Hans Brinker, Swiss Family Robinson, Little Women, and the Wide Wide World. And printed from hand-me-down plates, although never Bentleys, the central text of these juveniles was internally identical to other Blackie versions, ranging widely in production values. Blackie, seen here, recycled its stereotype plates for decades, too. One copy has a book plate that identifies it as a school attendance prize for 1910 and 11, sanctioned by the Burg School Board in Forfar, Scotland. A century ago, this book would have been even brighter than it remains today and must have made a stunning prize for the Annie Monroe named as proud recipient. The name of another girl, presumably her sister, is written opposite in a childish hand on top of the free end paper. Florence Monroe, 4 Market Street, Fail Far, Scotland. Even after an awkward self-correction, the town remains slightly misspelled. In spite of the misspelling, the specific street address and the two full names made finding the Monroes on 4 Market Street easy. According to the 1911 census, the Monroe family consisted of two working-class parents in their early 40s, Bain and Annie Monroe, plus their six daughters, ranging in ages from 19 to 2. Bain Monroe, age 42, worked as a mechanical engineer as an, at an iron foundry, and the eldest daughter, Nora, 19, was a weaver of linen and jute, while Florence, 16, is listed as dressmaker. In other words, the older Monroe girls were already wage earners. Annie, age 12, remained in school along with Helen, age 7. The littlest Monroes, Alice 4 and Jessie 2, remained at home with their mum. The handwritten inscription looks more childish than that of a 16-year-old. Annie, four years er younger than Florence, seems the likeliest person to have made her own prize over to an older sister. And as someone personally familiar with the complexities of barter economies among siblings, I first hazarded that Annie, perhaps with great ceremony, <coughs> traded her fancy books, book prize with her sister in exchange for a book she preferred to Austin. Or, thought I, perhaps Annie was, to paraphrase Elizabeth Bennet, not a great reader and had pleasure in other things. Northanger Abbey, with a 15-year-old heroine, does seem more apt reading for 16-year-old Florence than 12-year-old Annie. But all my guesses were innocent of Annie's true circumstances. Sadly, on the 5th of December, 1911, less than six months after receiving this book, Annie died of diphtheria and toxemia in the local hospital at the age of 13. Perhaps Annie valued her shiny, bright prize book so much that she gave it to her sister Florence just before her death, solemnly bequeathing it with that shaky inscription. Annie's colorful prize book may have been brought to her in hospital for reading aloud or as a comfort. Only 10 days later, on 15 December, little Alice Monroe, aged 5, also succumbed to diphtheria. And the deaths of the two Monroe girls were part of a wider diphtheria outbreak for the, entire, the entry prior to Alice's mentions another, an eight-year-old boy, dying of the same disease four days earlier. 
Effective worldwide vaccination against the disease did not begin until the 1920s. And among the overcrowded homes of the Scottish working classes, just before World War I, many such outbreaks ravaged not just families, but whole towns. And in the wake of such tragedy, many of Scotland's working poor made their way to countries such as the United States and Australia. Eventually, Florence also went to America. And in 1915, an outward-bound passenger list gives her occupation as, again, dressmaker. The highest level of education reported for Florence Monroe on her immigration papers to the United States was that she completed elementary. Florence married Michael Mowers, a carpenter in road construction from New York, and they had two daughters. As a naturalized American citizen, Florence was buried in Madison County, New York. Leaving school by 15 did not prevent her from building a productive life. In the context of these working-class patterns of girlhood, book prizes had a different currency than the perfunctory role they often serve today. At a time when girls turning wage-earning women at 14 or 15 a book of one's own was not, as now, a passport to further study, but the end of girlhood, the end of childhood, and of book learning. In Annie's case, this copy of Northanger Abbey may have been, quite literally and brutally, her very last book. For me, this book was a reality check telling the unvarnished story of a real reader of Jane Austen. This research was no longer academic. On a lighter note, cheap books challenged my ideas of good taste. Then, as now, some marketing gimmicks or packaging proved bizarre, even when, on the inside, the careful transfer of property, as here, from one relative to another, suggested that the book had been treasured across generations, no matter how cheap it had been. The late Victorian fashion for dressing English classics in a European interpretation of Asian costume was surprisingly widespread, although thankfully of short duration. The so-called chinoiserie designs for Jane Austen from the 1880s and early 90s make for a strange assortment of books. Only popular mass-produced reprints can demonstrate how ordinary readers encountered Austen's literary works. It's the extraordinary ordinariness of these books that makes them such credible witnesses to the history of reading. A few more examples. Even 20th century packaging requires local knowledge or historical context to appreciate. In the 1940s, Hollywood movies became book cover fodder for continental translations. Many early paperbacks of Austen sold in Europe appropriated movie stills that today seem haphazard at best. This Spanish copy, published in Barcelona in 1945, offers Olivier turned Heathcliff in the film Wuthering Heights as the face of Northanger Abbey. <laughs> the cover image is a conscious marketing tactic rather than a naive gaffe. In 1940, Laurence Olivier had played Mr. Darcy opposite Greer Garson in Pride and Prejudice, ghosting Austen's proud hero with memories of Bronte's brooding creature from the year before. With no equivalent movie of Northanger to pilfer for stills, the Spanish pulp publisher neatly manages to invoke the novel's gothic elements by alighting Austen and Bronte with a celebrity photo of Olivier. This is about selling translations of old books with Hollywood glamour in a war-torn Europe. Then, as now, marketing doesn't demand interpretive accuracy or a perfect match between celebrity and product. I have a few more doozies that I added for you. Uh, this is Persuasion, 
Um, maybe with John Wilson. Um, uh, certainly not the movie Persuasion. Um, a colleague is still helping me try to identify uh, this text from 1945 uh, in Spanish. Um, this is an Italian edition, 1956, um, uh, with on the front of it a still from an American Western. I thought you would appreciate that. Here it is, Devil's Doorway, 1950, uh, turned into uh, Emma and Highbury um, on the cover of uh, this 1956 teen edition uh, uh, of Italy. So it's, it's a colorization and a kind of a clever reuse of the movie. Um, this one is also one of my favorites. Uh, because this is an Italian translation of Pride and Prejudice, and yeah, she does look rather, rather something with that wig <laughs> and that wink. And you think, what movie? What, what, what is that? It's a teen edition. It's a very famous movie in Italy. It is War and Peace, <laughs> um, starring Audrey Hepburn and Henry Fonda in 1956, which had an, Amer an Italian director and was kind of a spaghetti, not Western, but serious movie. It was a huge hit in Italy, and if, for decades it was a sort of matter of pride. So uh, these are things that you lose uh, unless you really find them and look them up. Uh, one last example. Um, for you. Uh, this is continental translations of Austen that look comparatively understated, uh, can show us that even quiet designs can bear witness to local readings. Here are two unassuming post-war French translations of Northanger Abbey, published under the title of Catherine Moreland. And the copy on the left appeared in Brussels in 1945, and the smaller one on the right in 1946 in Paris. And the comparative austerity of these copies reflect dominant print aesthetics as well as war-era scarcities. Both copies reprint the 1899 translation by Félix Fénion, a famous Parisian anarchist and art critic whose translation dis disappointed his contemporaries, with one reviewer describing it as singular, almost disconcerting. <laughs> Fénion nonetheless continued to lend political uh, uh, excitement to Austin, whose novel he had translated while in jail for blowing up a restaurant. At a time when cheap reprints of even old books were coveted commodities across war-ravaged Europe, fragile paperbacks printed on poor quality paper were wrapped, as you can see carefully, in tight paper bands, like cuffs that encircled the books to prevent eager thumbs from despoiling them before purchase. And these protective cuffs doubled as additional advertisement space. The Belgian band straightforwardly offers the original English title of the book, while the French one insists on Catherine Morland as the most compelling young heroine in all of Austin, la plus vraie des jeunes filles de Genostène. Now that tagline allows, in the manner of all ad copy or banner headlines, a local play on words. The phrase vraie jeune fille idiomatically refers to a maiden, to the sexually uninitiated, asserting on its face that young Catherine Morlin is the most true of Austin's young heroines. The emphatic plus perhaps protests too much. In other words, this seemingly unassuming, plain Jane copy of Austen, when displayed in the book and magazine stalls of war-torn Paris, intended to titillate passers-by with the cheeky promise of a daring coming-of-age story. And with the band removed at purchase, the cheap book would regain its safe, po-faced composure as a serious classic. 
Original book bans rarely survive because they were meant to be detached at the time of sale, so advertising too can be lost. So to be sure, none of these books are authoritative editions of Jane Austen. The French and Spanish versions are not important scholarly translations of her work, and the reader the readers to whom all these books aspired were not high status. But that is precisely the point. While Austen's literary brand may be global now, the hard work of building her elite reputation was achieved in the trenches of lowbrow print culture, with books that engaged local constituencies in unique ways. Throwaway reads helped make Austen's reputation robust. Thank you.